Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to Book Off, a literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and I'm joined in the studio by two authors who are gearing up to go head to head in a war of the words. My first guest is a BAFTA-nominated scriptwriter and author who has worked on some of the world's best-selling video games. James Swallow, welcome to Book Off. It's a pleasure to be here. And next to him, uh, a best-selling author and screenwriter who has penned a couple of Doctor Who episodes in his time, as well as the popular Rivers of London series, Ben Aronovich. Hello and welcome. Hello. Lovely to see you. It's nice to be here. And uh, lovely that you've already, in in the moments before starting this podcast, come up with a brand new creative idea that you're going to work on as well. I love that. Absolutely. Well, yes, well, it was a sketch, but it wasn't. I mean, I won't go so far as say a creative it's idea. A, it's, the, it's, the I, 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 oh, it's not just. It's not a whole sketch show. It's just a. Oh, I see. Okay. It was a sketch. It was a sketch. It was, it was yeah. about how to leave your producer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which Something you're, had, you're thinking about. Experience of, you know. <laughs> the, you know how it, it's the, this industry is, is conducive to kind of having those terrible screaming breakups, and we thought, well, why not just play that out? You know, the, logically, as <laughs> the whole thing, if you can treat it like a, a bad relationship, like a bad breakup. Why not, you know, go the full hog with that? Yeah. And, yes. and so you two have known each other for, for quite a while then? Pretty much. Since, uh, certainly for like the last 10, 15 years now. Feels like longer. Feels like longer. Yeah. <laughs> in a good Feels way? Like in a good way. Yeah. In a, I mean, I can't actually remember a time when I wasn't friends with you, but there must have been a point. So... Well, it's, those, we, it's one of those kind of foxhole friendships, isn't it? You know, courage yeah. under fire, you know, where, you know, dealing with the slings and arrows of outrageous production issues. <laughs> that kind of bonds you, you know? Yes, occasionally I talk him down when he phones me up. He goes, I'm going to go kill! You know, insert name of, of editor here. Yeah. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, It's very important to have. I always say this to any, anybody who's starting out as a writer, you know, having a support structure, having other writers that you can talk to and go, am I crazy? Is this yeah. thing just happening to me? And other authors will go, no, no, it's not just you. And you're like, oh, okay, fine, great. It's really important to have that. Um, and you, you're both here to talk about um, your latest books. Um, we're going to do the book off a bit later on. You've each brought a, a, a book that you absolutely love that you think we should all read, and you're going to be pitching those. And I, I want to talk about um, Ghost, James, if I may, which is your, your latest novel. And it's a combination of, of tech, terrorism, action. Um, and in fact, it, it, it made me think a bit of the Jason Bourne films, which I hope is is a positive thing. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Ghost? Definitely. Well, Ghost is the, the latest in the, my series of uh, Mark Dane action thrillers. 
the lead character is uh, a, a, a character I came up with in reaction to seeing a lot of the sort of action heroes that were, were coming up in contemporary media. You know, these guys who are bulletproof, Teflon, very slick, very cool. And I thought those guys are a lot of fun to read about. But I was interested in writing about somebody who had to kind of work a little bit harder for it. Someone who's the guy in the van, you know, the guy who's always working the computer. And I thought, well, what if that guy has to do the job of the kind of James Bond character, you know, the door kicker and the trigger puller? What if he's pushed outside of his comfort zone? So that was my core idea for the, for the character. So he's definitely uh, a techie as much as he's an action hero. So I do lean into the techno for the techno thriller there. Um, and as you know, it, and it's nice to be compared to Jason Bourne as well, because definitely uh, I'm trying to follow in the footsteps of Robert Ludlum, Fleming, uh, mm. Tom Clancy, you know, all of those sort of like great big doorstop airport beach read thrillers that I came up on in, in the 70s and the 80s. Very much I'm trying to go back to that sort of thing, but do it through a kind of 21st century, post-WikiLeaks, post-Edward Snowden, you know, Cold War 2.0 kind of mm. lens. And the research for your for, for this book, I imagine all your books, but specifically this one, I imagine it took you to some pretty strange and wonderful places. I'm talking about, you know, exotic weapon systems and, and the intelligence side of it. Was there anything really shocking or, or extraordinary that you sort of stumbled across whilst researching this book? You noticed that I have uh, long grey hair. I didn't <laughs> used to have that when I started writing these. The, the thing about this stuff is, is I find these bits of information about strange and weird things that are happening on the fringes of technology and the, you know, the, 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 the space between where military technology and commercial technology and the espionage world happens, mm. all these things that intersect with our lives. And the stuff I find out is, is some of it is frankly terrifying. Um, but at the same time as a writer, it, it kind of spins up into my head and I think this is a terrific idea for a story. So that kind of technological frontier is, is very interesting and I try to make it as accurate as I possibly can. I try to do deep dives into all this stuff. So I talk to people who are, you know, black hat computer hackers. I talk to information security specialists. I talk to people who work in the military and I try to make sure that I have as close to the real as I can for the, the technological background of it because my stories are quite high-octane, fast-paced. So maybe if the action is a, a little a little bit unrealistic, I try to make the rest of the story as realistic as mm. possible to kind of ground it. I want to talk a bit more about technology in, in general and, and in writing in, in 2019. But, uh, Ben, if I could come to you as well, because um, you've got a new book, a new standalone coming pretty soon. In fact, I think it's a novella, isn't it? Yes. Uh, this is called The October Man. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, The October Man came about because uh, well, my characters won't shut up. Um, <laughs> and uh, in the main, my main series, uh, the Rivers of London series, I have a single viewpoint character and his name is Peter Grant and all, everything is told from his point of view. And, and the other characters started to get very upset with this because they felt that they were being left out. And, and why should Peter get all the limelight? So I proposed a series of novellas, which would be from other people's points of view. And the first one is The October Man. And The October Man is basically about Peter's German counterpart. Right. Now, so I, I thought it would be fun. And he just he just turned up one day in a, in a very kind of micro short story and, and refused to leave. And in the end, I decided, to, uh, and I'm very popular in Germany, so I thought it'd be fun to, in a very meretricious way, <laughs> to write the story set in Germany, uh, and and it was a lot of fun. But so, and it was also nice to write from outside the normal viewpoint, but in the same world. So it's the same world, but it's a different viewpoint, and it was fun because he's he's very unlike Peter in a lot of ways, and so it was it was fun to write about a different character with a different attitude. 
And is this potentially a way into the Rivers of London series for, for someone who maybe hasn't read any of the other ones? I, I think so, yes. I couldn't tell. I'm so close to it that I can't mm. actually tell you whether, you know, I wouldn't know. Um, I, but people have said that, yes, you can pick this up and you can read it and, and this could be a way in. Although it would be very strange to me that you, <laughs> if you came in through that way. Um, but, hey, you know, uh, give it a whirl. Give it a That's whirl, what I say. And And in terms of actually writing... A novella, then, Did, is, is that what you set out to do, a, a slightly shorter book? Yes, or... I pitched them. Well, what, what happened was is that I wrote a novella for a company called Subterranean Press, who specialise in, in, in one-off novellas that are beautifully done. They're, they're kind of collector's editions mm. kind of things for people to, for the for fans to buy. And I hadn't r- written a novella before because um, I it's not a form that's very popular and publishers don't really like it that much. Well, this it didn't. It's getting much more popular. I again. love a novella. Well, they're very good for like plane journeys because yeah. it's like a novella lasts about a plane journey, and so therefore, uh, they're they're good for those kind of long haul flights. And also with the rise of Kindle and other e-readers, uh, where how thick the book is is no longer as you know. Because I, I don't know about you, but I go in and if that book's like a little skinny book, and I'm not paying seven pounds ninety nine for that. You, can, you know, it'll take me like three minutes. But with an event, you can't actually see how long the book is when you buy it because it's on a little e-reader. So, but um, uh, so and I liked it, so I thought. I can't, don't really have, I'm not fast enough writer to write two full novels every year. And I wanted to do something other than the Peter Grant main strand of the main. So I just pitched mm. it and then they, they, they kind of went, yay. So, you know, I'm stuck now, really, <laughs> with them. <laughs> I love this idea that there's, you know, the characters just don't shut up. Is that, is that something that you've experienced as well, James? I find with my characters, it's more that, um, I end up putting them in terrible situations and then I feel like they're kind of out there somewhere going, please don't leave us here. Please, you know, excuse please, me, please, excuse you know, me. You know, it's like tying them to a railway track and then walking away and it's like, there's a train coming, please come and rescue me. From it. So, um, my, you know, my stories are often just a, an escalating series of me putting my characters in more and more interesting jeopardy while having them try to save the world. So, so yeah, there is, there is definitely a, a drive to for them to have their story told. And I think after a while, a character will take on a sense of its own. They'll, they'll develop an inner life. Yeah. And they'll start to tell you things about who they are. You know, it, it's, it's weird to say that because it makes me sound kind of weirdly schizophrenic, doesn't it? Well, you've got voices living in your head? Well, kind of. All of us authors really I think, Yeah, well, I think most, most authors I talk to, have got, their characters are talking to them in some way, however they want to view that. But that's, that's true of most authors, especially sort of series authors with a character that goes through many books, I would think. Well, you, you, it's become very fashionable now for people to go, oh, well, it's just a conceit that authors have. Yeah, so it's writing. Writing is a conceit <laughs> that authors have. The idea that we're writing something that somebody else wants to pay money to read is pretty conceited to start with. <laughs> so, you know, whatever gets you through the process, I say, and, and my characters won't shut up. I just and I will beat anyone he says otherwise. You know, you if you if you're trying to create a series of characters, if you want to create an ongoing series of of, of novels and have those characters expand and grow and do interesting stuff, you have to create a space for them to move into, and that means that they have to have that inner life. They have to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, is that when it happens, when you have a character that's that stroppy, you celebrate because it means they're, they're in, in some ways it means it's they're easy to write for because they will <laughs> they will kind of just go and write themselves in that kind of stupid phrase that people have. But if you you sometimes you create this wonderful character and it just lies, they just lie there limpless and lifeless on the page, and you're going get up. It's like <laughs> do Fran- something. No, it's like Frankenstein. You know, 
narrative. Get the pad and say, like, clear. Apply 20 cc's of narrative. Yes. <laughs> but then you get the other like thing that. is where you, you'll have, uh, you, you'll create a character and you'll think, okay, well, I've got this idea and that character's going to do this and they're going to do his and they're going to go here and there and then a character will get into a situation and they'll look, it's like they look off the page at you and go, not doing that. <laughs> that, that, that just doesn't work for me. And that's you realise that stupid. that's the character. You, you know, and you have to, if you, if you find yourself shoehorning a character into a situation that the character doesn't fit in, you're not writing it well. You have and, to And it will uh, feel flat. Listen. I mean, in, in the practical terms, you're, when you read it, if you've ever read something and you've just gone, oh, that's when, when someone's trying to make their character do something they didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, called, it's called carrying the... Well, I mean, a lot of the time it's the... What is it? The, the stupid ball? The idiot ball. The idiot ball. The idiot, the idiot ball. ball. When wow. a character does something really stupid because you need that to happen for the plot to happen and, and you sit there going, no. And the idiot balls... And audiences don't like it particularly. It's all right in comedy. The idiot ball is a staple of comedy because you can get away with anything in yeah. comedy as long as it's funny. Right, but in, in anything that's not comedy, then you you know the idiot ball just like oh lazy writing because they just needed someone to do something stupid. A, you have to get to B or whatever, and it, this is well, the you way. know, like oh they had to walk down into that dark cellar at night in a haunted house. <laughs> Nobody does that. <laughs> Nobody. Everyone's seen Halloween. No one is going to go into no. that cellar. <laughs> you got to come up with a clever reason to coerce them. Well, right. that's you that's where the get... telephone is. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, well, I, I mean, I was—I you know. think Peter describes it as a risk assessment. Is is what, what <laughs> the blonde person doesn't do before going down into the cellar. <laughs> I wanted to come back to the technology um, aspect of, of writing, in, certainly in your work, because you've probably got to keep up with a lot of what's going on, military intelligence, yeah, etc. Um, how important to you is it to, to have it spot on then? Because you say you talk to all these people, and they obviously tell you a certain amount of things and they give certain things away. Is is it important to you to, to keep up with it and have it absolutely as accurate as possible? I, I try my best to do that. You know, it, it's, I would say it's kind of like 80% real, 20% made up. It's like I'll, I'll look at something, uh, like say a new piece of technology that's been invented yeah. and then I ask myself, well, what happens if I put my finger on the fast forward button a little bit? If, if you take that idea and then you push it forward, you push it beyond the real couple of steps into the slightly more unreal. And that's where you get something interesting and dramatic. You know, you get this kind of what's going to happen the day after tomorrow. Mm. And that involves me having to kind of keep my eye open with all this stuff. So, I, you know, I, I read widely about, about current technology and military technology and cyber technology and computers and that sort of thing. So I'm always skimming all of these publications and websites and, and, and looking at lectures and stuff like that, trying to find... What's the new thing? What's the thing after the thing? Because the problem about writing stuff in the current period, in the real world, is that the real world is constantly outstripping you. And so something I write today, when the book comes out in a year's time, may be old news. When I was working on Ghost, politically... The, the way that the entire world changed with the, you know, the, the US presidential election and issues that were going on in North Korea. At the time when I started writing the book, I had an idea about how that was going to work. And the real world went in a completely different direction. I had to go back and change these things. Yeah. So it wouldn't make my book feel dated before it even comes out. And technology is exactly the same thing. Is an idea that you have right now may be something that was done five or ten years ago. And I mentioned as well that you've worked on some video games, some, yeah. some pretty big 
big sellers. Are you are you a gamer, Ben? Are you? A, are you uh, I am. I'm. A, I'm. A, it's one of those phrases like, "Are you a gamer?" You see, I. I Dabble. would say I you would, are a gamer. I would say yes, except I've met gamers, and so therefore, <laughs> I mean, in the sense that I've met people who who they play games and they like know how they work and they have like an intimate knowledge of how games work, and I don't have that. I'm one of those people that I pick up a game and I go, "Oh, I like this," and then I play it and and then I stop. You're you're what you're what we call in the trade. You're mid core. You're, you're not a hardcore gamer. Mid-core. You're not. A casual. I would be I would be mid core as well. Mid-core. Then Ben, you I, and me. I also don't have a lot of time. I, the two restrictions on me is I don't have a lot of time, uh, and my son monopolises the the, the the console quite right, a lot. Yeah. So therefore, I don't get a chance to play it. So, <laughs> uh, so James, was it actually your, your involvement in in these games was was as a writer, or is it is is it developing, or what was your role in them? It's all, people always say to me, "What does it mean when they say you're a game writer?" And that's how long is a piece of string question because right. it depends on the kind of game that you're talking about. People say, "Well, games don't need narrative," you know. Pac-Man doesn't have a narrative. Tetris doesn't have a narrative, and that's, that's very true. But then there are uh, huge games. If you think of stuff like Red Dead Redemption mm. or uh, Division Two, that just came out this week that I've been working on, and Skyrim, those are massive open worlds yeah. that have a huge amount of narrative in them. They'll have a, a core storyline that your character will follow, but they'll also have lots of little side quest missions that you can do. Every character that you stop and talk to, every book that you pick up in the world and read, every road sign, every sort of bit of text about, say, a potion you might buy from a shopkeeper. Someone has to write all of that. And all of that is built into to generating a narrative of the world. And then there's also uh, something called environmental narrative, which is designing the world in such a way that the the world you see around you tells a story. So, you know, if you go into a house and, you know, they say there's marks on the wall where the place was burned and, you know, and then there, you know, there's a dead body here and there's, you know, an object over here. That mm. is all a narrative, even though there's no dialogue in it. And is it scripted all, then? Yeah, all of that stuff. Right, is, okay. All of that stuff has to be scripted by somebody. Um, some projects have, you know, teams of like 10 or 15 writers. Some smaller projects can be done by, by one or two people. But all of that has to be under the, the umbrella of, of game narrative and all of that has to be written by somebody. Because I, I don't know about you, Ben, but... I, Occasionally, will will dabble in a in a game, perhaps on the PlayStation or something, and I sort of use it as an escapism in a way. And you know, you you read books to escape, and you go into those just that I'm not looking at my phone, and I don't want to know what's happening in the world because I'm immersed in the world of the book. Similarly, with games, that's sort of why I do it. I think because it just feels like I'm I'm sort of being taaken out of the the day to day. Yeah, although you know, there's a there's a I, I'm not really sure of what the term is. It's not so much escapism; it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that as well. <laughs> I mean, it's just fun. I mean, it's more fun than doing the washing up. Let's be honest. And and, and or, or half a dozen other things you could be doing simultaneously, including staring at the wall in blank kind of like stupefaction because you can't think of how the next chapter is going to go. And so, therefore, you know. And I, I have a range of kind of PC games. I'm much more. Um, I'm much more these days into kind of like uh, strategy games and god games that you can run on a PC because you just, you just hoit them up off Steam and have a quick play and then you go back to work. You see, mm. whereas Red Dead Redemption, I haven't even started. I did like the first chapter and I just went, I just don't have time to play this game because <laughs> like it's complicated. It's more complicated than the first Red Dead Redemption. And you sit there going, I, I just can't remember. What was the, No, I can't do this. I can't get engaged in this because it will suck. 
all my productivity out of out of the environment, and I just don't have time right now to do that at this particular juncture. Well, it's a commitment, isn't it? It, is. it really is. And I, I think it's quite funny. I think in the end we are going to have... I mean, like, think about like those little games you can play on the tube. Is the fact is that they're, they're, they're quick-hit games. They're just little bits of fun you can do. And then things like Red Dead Redemption, they're like sort of war and peace they are like the, the big <laughs> heavy novels that you you know that someone has, and they've had, they have a commit you know a concomitant level of in of of skill put into them mm. right now it takes a lot of skill to make tetris okay that's not uh, but it takes skill and a lot of hours and dedication to make red dead redemption of a lot of people it's a team thing in the same way that a movie is a team thing or yeah. a television series is a team thing and and the the beauty of course of novels is they're not a team thing is that when you whenever you work in any of these projects like i know you work in games and i work in uh, in television is is it's like going to your novel it's like nobody tells me what to do in this novel except for me basically and and that's one of the, the beautiful things about uh, a novel compared to other kind of like narrative projects is that no nobody else is in, in gets between you and the and the reader you know but that said there there are smaller scale game projects that are kind of a bit more of that novelistic experience you know stuff yes. that indie games that are done by somebody maybe a team of only one or two people stuff that has a, a smaller bite-sized thing that won't eat up so much of your time. You played uh, What Remains of Edith Finch, didn't you? You know that yes. one? That's a good example of that. And there's a really great one I played last year called Tacoma, which is a sort of sci-fi investigatory game. And that's like maybe two or three hours out of your day. And it has a very authored feel to it. And it feels mm -hmm. like a, a small little thing that you can just kind of pick up and play. In I, I think we're going to get a lot of that because there's a lot of um, engines coming on, uh, like open source engines yeah. that are coming in that are almost as good as kind of like the, the, the actual top-of-the-line engines that people are using to make these big, big AAA games. And so, therefore, uh, people with imagination or people with access to people with skills um, will be able to start making these kind of like four or five people games where you where you can come in and you can just have four or five people in because your overheads are low. You can have it yeah. $9.99 and people will pick it up because they, they will take a chance on it. And But there is a range. I mean, like all these things, once you start trying to, you, you, can, you can make kind of generalizations, but as soon as you start doing that, you just you immediately run into exceptions at, at every level, like mm -hmm. the, the indie games and all that kind of stuff. You mentioned you obviously write for, for TV. Are you working on something now? No, I started writing novels because my TV career was dead. <laughs> Deader than a dead thing that I'd got for it. So dead, in fact, that it had been dead for about 10 years before I even noticed it was dead. <laughs> and will you go back? I will. I might go back. Mm. I mean, I might. I, I mean, you know, the, if there's a, a Rivers of London TV series, I will probably want Is to write... Is there a Rivers a, of London Well, TV there's a possibility show? of a Rivers of London TV okay. series. But there's been a possibility of a Rivers of London TV series for the last 20 years. So, you know, longer than there's actually been a possibility of Rivers of London, the novels. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think my attitude to television has now become, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I, I'm not going to worry about it because life is too short. Hence the joke about breaking up with your producer. All right then, gents. Um, it's time now for the book off. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And this is where, as I said earlier, you both get to pitch a book that you love, that you've brought with you, um, that you think we should all read. And you get three minutes on the clock, but you don't have to use it if you don't want to. Before we get around to that, um, could you just tell us the books that you have brought? So, uh, Ben, tell us the one that you're going to be talking about. I have brought a book called uh, Gorilla My Love by Tony Carter Bambera. Right, OK. I don't know that one, I must say. Uh, James, what about you? I'm going to be talking about Neuromancer, the cyberpunk science fiction novel by William Gibson. Neuromancer. Can I just say that if he hadn't chosen Neuromancer, I would have chosen right, Neuromancer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be interesting. Then. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, as I said, you've got three minutes, but you don't have to use it. When we get to three minutes, though, I am going to be ringing you or honking you out with the bell or the horn. So, James, would you like to be rung out or would you like to be honked? Uh, bell me, please. I will bell you, which means, Ben, you get the horn. But you also get to decide if you'd like to go first or second. I will go first because um, that way uh, Jim will obliterate my memory, everyone's memory of, one of this disaster. <laughs> this isn't really a Not pitch. Not at all. This isn't really a pitch. What? How, I'd just like to explain what, how, how we got to this point. He said, we got a picture book. I went, okay. And then I, he said, I've made some notes. I thought, oh, God, notes. So I sat down to make some notes and it turned into an essay, which is now what you're going to get. <laughs> well, look, that's fine. That's fine as well. And uh, if it comes in under three minutes, then that's great. You've just been succinct. And you? I would like to point out, so I just want you to know this is all James's fault. I've put three minutes on the clock, Ben. So it's over to you to tell us about Gorilla My Love. Okay. Gorilla My Love is written by Tony Cardi Bambera, who was born March 25th, 1939, and died on December the 9th, 1995, unfortunately. She was born in Harlem, New York, grew up in the city in New Jersey. She trained to be a mime, wanted to be a dancer, don't we all? Worked as a psychiatric social worker and was a civil rights activist. If that wasn't enough, she went to write and produce dozens of films right up until her death in 1995. Bambera was not a prolific prose writer, but she produced several short story collections and two novels, The Salt Eaters and These Bones Are Not My Child. All her work is brilliant and should be, in my opinion, required reading for everyone in the entire universe. But I thought I would go back to where I met her for the first time via the slim collection which I stumbled across in my mum's house when I was young and stupid. 
Gorilla, My Love, was first published in 1972 and is a collection of her short stories from the 60s and early 70s. They are politically political, both consciously on Bambera's part and and because people living under oppression cannot help but be political whenever they dare to open their mouth and talk about their lives. But they are also recognisably and fundamentally true. Also, occasionally, laugh out loud and get strange strange looks on the tube funny. It starts with a sort of preface which explains why she doesn't write autobiographical fiction, not least because, and I apologise for my accent here, here comes your mama screaming how you, screaming how could you and sighing death where is thy sting and starts to grill you about, sorry, new page, <laughs> starts to grill you about what was going down there back there in Brooklyn when she was working three jobs and trying to improve your life, the quality of your life. And she finishes with the, pref- the preface with a sentence that has served as a guiding principle for my whole career, which is, so I deal in straight-up fiction myself because I value my family and my friends, and mostly because I lie a lot anyway. The stories, while mainly set around New York, cover a ton of fascinating characters as they go about their daily lives, some struggling, some dancing, some dying and some laughing, all of them immediate and vivid. Just as a snapshot of uh, just sorry, comma in the wrong place. Just as a snapshot of Black American life in the 1960s, these stories would be worth reading. But what makes them compulsory, and I mean compulsory, not compelling, which is a word that's been beaten to death by the media nomenclature. Sorry, I digress. It's what makes Bambera's work compulsory for anyone who likes reading, and especially for anyone who wants to be a writer, is the beauty of her language. I'd read you some of it, but that would spoil it, like ripping off a butterfly's wing to display its colours. Because this is a beauty that is baked into the whole text. It's pretty enough at the level of the individual sentence, but read those sentences one after another and the words begin to sing and dance and preen and holler. You will find yourself singing along, which is a neat trick for a bit of prose. I reread it in preparation for this podcast and was struck by how influential Tony Carter Bambera had been on my own work. I realised that Peter Grant's cheeky Londoner shtick and the flights of fancy as he encounters the supernatural are but pale imitations of Bambera's prose. Uh, you had more though. You had to, you turned a page again. Okay, I, I feel I have done done done. My I best. think you've done so. You've done great oh, justice to it. Blimey! It was just basically you know where you can both buy it and stuff. Oh right. Well, we can we can definitely work that. Which We're is you can't. You have to go and get it second hand. <laughs> you can't get it. Well, I couldn't find it, but I only like, well, I went online and said you know went to Amazon. Yeah. There was there was only second hand copies on Amazon. Oh. So that I don't think that counts as a compulse complete total check. No. But That's cool, though. You know, the the sense of the hunt, tracking it down and finding it is going to make it reading it much more worthwhile. It is, and it is. I, 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 I hardly recommend it. It's, it's, it's you know, even if you don't like this kind of stuff, and I don't normally like this kind of stuff, it's it's worth reading for the for the, just these. And they're short stories, and short stories are painless. Perfect for just before bed as well, aren't they? Just yes. to, you know, just, just to get a little it, something, a little something in. Before that was lunch. brilliant, Ben. Really enjoyed that, and I'm going to go ask you a bit more about it um, after we've heard from James. So I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you to tell us about New Romancer. So you're hearing this on a podcast streamed directly over the net via a portable digital player possibly or maybe some handheld cellular telephone device. All of that is pretty futuristic, pretty science fiction when you think about it. The World Wide Web for us, the infrastructure of it is, is for people living in 2019, it's the air we breathe, it's ubiquitous. 
back in 1984, we, we just weren't there yet. That kind of stuff really didn't exist. It was cutting edge. It really was truly science fictional. And science fiction storytellers, as they so often do, were the ones who lit the path, who opened up the possibilities to create something in fiction that would eventually affect the real world. Neuromancer by William Gibson, written in 1984, is definitely a book, I think, that has a, a gravitational pull on, on the technological world that we live in right now. And I've got to say, it has one of the best killer opening lines I've ever come across. The sky above the port was the colour of television tuned to a dead channel. Just so evocative and really just hits me hard every time I hear it. Neuromancer for me was this shockwave that just got lit inside my head when I read it in the 1980s. Around about the time I was starting to convince myself that I might try to be a writer, Gibson's laconic authorial voice and this penchant he had for hyper-nuanced detail just absolutely left this amazing imprint on me. This book is the definitive cyberpunk science fiction thriller novel. It's gritty and rough-edged urban SF comes together with absolute certainty. It's got a seamless sense of location and the pace just made me want to write with the same kind of confidence. The anti-hero of this book is a guy called Henry Dorset Case. He's this wasted former console cowboy in a technologically enhanced future Japan. He begins the novel as a drug-addicted burnout with his ability to cybernetically interface with the internet neutered as a punishment for stealing from his employers. He's offered the chance to return to his old life. Case takes on the, uh, a job with a shady mercenary that unfolds into this series of escalating infiltrations and recruitments and cyber attacks that take him across the world and eventually to a playground for the super rich in Earth orbit where a rogue artificial intelligence is planning to break its chains and find freedom. That's essentially the, the core of the story there. Casey's narrative is this sort of Chandler-esque adventure viewed through a Blade Runner lens, and Gibson's novel just captures this uniquely urban, uniquely 1980s view of the future. When I read it, it was cutting edge. It was, it was just, you know, beyond the horizon, and it was dragging me into this future. And strangely now, when I read it, in 2019, it's become this weird retro-futuristic parallel universe. It's, it's like the, um, the old Hugo Earnsback sci-fi with the ray guns and spaceships, the guys in you know, pointy space costumes and, and weird rockets with fins, how that future never existed. And now this future that Gibson created, this cyberpunk 80s future, that doesn't exist anymore. This book won the, the, it did the triple threat, it won the, the three big awards for sci-fi, which was the Hugo, the Nebula and the Philip K. Dick Award all in one year. And that's like the equivalent of winning, say, like the Pulitzer, the Booker and, and an Oscar all in the same year. So it was never did that. No book had ever done that before. It's not just Mohawks and Jack Sockets in the back of the head. It was the start of the Sprawl trilogy, the, which followed by Count Zero, Monolith Overdrive. Basically, it helped to describe the digital world that we live in today. Oh, good last line as well. Wow. <clears throat> now, so this is very interesting because I don't know either of these books and I, I feel like I, I should know. How you not know Neuromancer? I don't shocking. know how I don't know Neuromancer. I mean, I was born in 1985, so, you know, maybe that's, that's why. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it was written the year before me. But you you obviously love it, Ben, as well. As you said, you know, if you if you hadn't have picked uh, your, your Gorilla My Love, you would have maybe thought about 
picking no, this no, book as I well. picked Gorilla My Love because he'd already snaggled <laughs> Neuromancer. Let's get the causal effect here. But everything you were saying about um, Neuromancer there, James, just, uh, you know, I was just fur- furiously scribbling down like Blade Runner lens, you know, this sort of gritty, pacey book, that the, the super punk thing, like everything about it, I was just like, wow, this sounds absolutely fantastic. And, and I agree with you about the opening line. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and Ben, going back to yours and uh, and to Tony, the, the author, and you said that she mainly produced films. She didn't write that much, but she was a film producer she was as well? A, she was a, a documentary film producer. Right. I don't know much about her, her film work. No. Because I came to her through her books, and it, she worked in America, and it was mostly indie documentaries and stuff that we, we never saw, never came over here, so mm. we never saw it. But I, I I just got the books. We talked earlier about novellas and how, I mean, I love a novella, and, and you have written one, and I love short stories as well, especially before bedtime. Um, so the, the idea of a, of a collection I've I've not heard of and an author that I, I haven't read before is is really appealing to me, actually. And the way that you described it made me think, yeah, I could I could definitely sink sink my teeth into a few of those. And James, just just hearing you talk about New Romancer and then Ben saying, goodness me, I would have chosen that anyway and why haven't you read it? It makes me feel like, right, I've got to go out and find this book now, I think. Um, I don't know, both both great pictures, both great sounding books, but I've got to take one home. And I think because I'll probably get out easy, I'm going to take New Romancer home by William Gibson. Don't you think, Ben? I think that's fair enough, isn't it? As I haven't read it. Well, I, I'm also, you know, the sadistic side of me says that you just that because if you read your romance and you like it, you're going to be stuck with reading a whole pile of other books. So therefore, <laughs> <laughs> amazing that it won the the triple threat as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and it it was I said about it being the you know the definitive cyberpunk novel, but it was also kind of the the thing that kicked open the door for that entire subgenre. And mm. there's, there's a whole raft of writers who followed Gibson along who produced different flavours of the same kind of style of science fiction storytelling. And, and it was very much this movement that, you know, that was a, a sea change from the, the 70s style, a kind of trippy kind of sci-fi. It went to this, this darkly urban place, which to me as a kid growing up in that era felt true. It felt like, to me, that's the future I was going to have. And mm. we're kind of not a million miles away from it now. But but also to um, to bring it back to Grid on My Love, it's, it's the thing about Neuromancer is is that Gibson had a way, had took a quality of, of writing yeah. to science fiction. But more than that, it wasn't just that he took like high quality writing, because there are quite, plenty of quite well good writers in science fiction. Mm. What he did is he... He wasn't afraid to use technology as its own metaphor for other things. So he talks about he talk, he he uses you know he he talks about um, uh, you know strands of DNA unwinding as a metaphor for something else, which is something that people didn't do in those days. They 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 didn't use kind of like technology as a metaphor in quite mm. except in a very kind of clumsy way. And he used it a very slick way and very evocative way that he would use kind of like how computer technology and then as a metaphor for sort of like um, people's emotions or things happening or yeah. uh, and then and then back again and then would refeed that back into talking about the technology. And that was very very clever. And no one had really done that. I mean, except for maybe Philip K. Dick and mm. no one and and, and Zelensky. No one had really, really done that particularly, and Alfred Bester a little bit, and yeah. you know, and John Brunn is another good yeah, example. And, and but... you, yeah, and yeah, you have all these people who are almost not, but he was like he distilled a lot of these people down to to this core and then just gone with it, and that was that was very interesting. And well. he has, I, I, I talk about um, yeah, his use of language. I felt like he 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 follows a lot of the same cues that Ian Fleming did, 
with a, the, that hyper nuanced detail. But yeah. there's a there's a turn of phrase, just a a, a sharpness that he has. The, the, is it in Count Zero where there's the line about he describes a line of parked motorcycles looking like a line of enameled scorpions, and it's yeah. just you know immediately just like this sharp edged evocative. It's very Chandler-esque. Very much so. There's, yeah. a, there's a line here that I, that I love where he talks about the, the idea of cyberspace. And I'm going to, if, if, if I can read a quote here. The Matrix has its roots in primitive arcade games, cyberspace, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators in every nation by children being taught mathematical concepts, a graphic representation of data abstracted from the banks of every computer in the human system, unthinkable complexity, lines of light ranged in the non-space of the mind, clusters and constellations of data like city lights receding. And that just gives me goosebumps. I yeah. love that yeah. turn of phrase he has there. I'm really excited to read it now as well. That's the uh, that's the great thing is is after talking about a book like that and hearing both of you talk about it and and both books, I'm suddenly like right. And, and the next book, the next book, Count Zero has the single best opening page of any novel. This I is the following read. the following book. You see, they set a slam hand on yeah, my the, yeah, on my yeah. tail. From the, yeah, see again, it's like <laughs> I haven't read this book for like 20 years. <laughs> but you can you know comes, it. You can straight I'm scrambling for him through a forest <laughs> of brown legs. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is very good recommendation. Um, right, William Gibson, it is then, and uh, New Romancer. But I'm also going to check out. Is it Tony? Cade Bambara? Tony Cade Bambara. C A D E. And the hunt will make it even more enjoyable, you know. It trying be, to I mean, track I looked it up and it had like, would you like 570 different right. options? If you like me and you don't care that the books are all crinkly, you can pick it up for 99p. Oh, no. See, no I, I like my books. It's better if it's well loved, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. I love, I love a well loved. I like coffee stains. If it hasn't got a coffee stain <laughs> on it, it's probably not been loved properly. <laughs> the October Man by Ben Aronovich is published by. Golands and is published in June and Ghost by James Swallow is available now published by Bonnier. James Abed, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's absolutely. been lovely. Thank you. Thanks Good to so much. Appreciate it. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.